The coronavirus has no power over a man in Alabama who wholeheartedly is in love with his wife. Ann Klein has battled Alzheimer's for 17 years. She's now resident in John Knox Manor Nursing Home in Montgomery, Alabama. Her husband, Dr. John Klein, visits her every day through the screen window of her room. Dr. Klein doesn't want his wife of 45 years to forget him. So every day, he goes to her window of his wife's room, and they talk together, and they sing songs together. I watched the video where he said, let's sing Jesus Loves Me, standing at the window, the screen window. He said, let's sing Jesus Loves Me, and he and his wife of 45 years sing Jesus Loves Me together. Then he says, would you like to sing the Lord's Prayer? And then they sing the Lord's Prayer together. He was there yesterday, and he'll be there tomorrow, and the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. He spends about 15 minutes a day at her window talking to his wife and singing to her. And he'll be back tomorrow, the next day, and the next, because he has a wholehearted commitment to his wife that is unmistakable. A wholehearted commitment to his wife is beautiful. There's something about a wholehearted person that is very appealing to us. There's something about being wholehearted that is, is a beautiful thing to us. We, we like it when we see somebody who is all in. To use the phrase of some of you orange folks. You know what? I believe Jesus would kind of like that phrase, all in as well. Because I believe Jesus wanted people who followed Him to be wholehearted in their devotion to Him. Now, early on in Jesus' ministry, the crowds were enormous. The serious opposition to Jesus had not yet begun, and there were a lot of would-be followers who wanted to follow Him. Some were needy, some were curious, some were committed, but they were all excited about what they were seeing and about what they were hearing, especially during Jesus' Galilean ministry, that is, His ministry in the northern part part of Israel, Especially during that Galilean ministry, the crowds were enormously large. In fact, don't turn there, but in Luke chapter 12 verse 1, the gospel writer tells us that there was a crowd of many thousands, and I quote, who were trampling on one another. A crowd of many thousands who were trampling on one another. You see, to put it bluntly, Jesus appealed to people. To thousands and thousands and thousands of people. However, Jesus knew that most of them would not pay the price of following Him. Jesus knew that most of the crowd were just interested in what He could do for them. And He, in essence, told them that. There's a very interesting story in Luke chapter 9. If you want to take God's Word and open God's Word with me to Luke chapter 9. A very interesting story about basically two different crowds of people. Luke chapter 9. In Luke chapter 9, we see one crowd, or one group we might call it, who was wholehearted. And then we see another group that were half-hearted. And today I'd like for you to examine your life to see which group you would be in. Wholehearted or half-hearted. And it might surprise you as we go through the text, which group was which. Now before I read the story, let me tell you uh, one of the reasons that I believe the Bible is the inspired, infallible Word of God. One of the reasons that I believe that is because of what we're going to be reading today. 
if you and I were writing the Bible, we'd leave this kind of stuff out. The thing that we're going to be reading today, if you and I were reading the Bible, we'd leave a lot of this stuff out. Because if we were writing the Bible, the heroes would always look like heroes. The Bible heroes would always sound like Bible heroes. The Bible heroes would always have the right answer. They would always do the right thing. If you and I were writing the Bible, that's the way we would write it. But that's not the way it's written. What we're going to be looking at today is really almost comical. And it also is quite fascinating that the men of God who are following Jesus were so out of touch with the lifestyle that He wanted them to live. They didn't always get it right. They didn't always live like heroes. Let's pick up the story in Luke chapter 9, beginning in verse 37. The next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. Now, James and John and Peter and Jesus had been on the mountain that we call the Mount of Transfiguration. We won't get into that story, but they're coming down the mountain now after that was over. The remaining nine disciples were at the bottom of the mountain. And it says, when, when they came down from the mountain, what kind of a crowd met them, church? Large crowd, thank you, a large crowd. A man in the crowd called out, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only child. The Spirit seizes him, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into convulsions so that he foams at the mouth. It scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. Everybody look at your pastor for a moment. If that were you, You'd be broken hearted, wouldn't you? That was your son. It'd be absolutely, it would tear you out of the frame. So now let's see what happens. This man says, it scarcely ever leaves him, verse 40, or 39, it scarcely ever leaves him and is destroying him. And then look at verse 40. Very interesting. I begged your disciples. Shows how desperate he was. I begged your disciples to drive it out. Watch this. But they could not. I begged your disciples to drive out this demon, but they could not. If I were to use one word to summarize the disciples at this point in their life, I would use the word powerless. Powerless. I begged them to drive out this demon, but they could not. Now let's keep reading the story. Verse 42. So, while, even while the boy was coming, that is coming towards Jesus, the demon threw him to the ground in a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the evil spirit, healed the boy, and gave him back to his father. And they were all amazed at the greatness of God. Now read very carefully in verse 43. While everyone was marveling at all that Jesus did, he said to his disciples, those twelve is what we're talking about, the twelve apostles, the twelve disciples, he said to his disciples, verse 44, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. Now let me say something to you. If Jesus said, listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you, then it's something worth remembering. In fact, the New uh, American Standard says, let these words sink into your ears. In other words, Jesus, as the crowd was around, was so excited because he had cast out the demon from this boy. Jesus said, guys, 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 come here, come here. I've got to tell you something. I want you to listen carefully. To what I'm about to tell you. Because I want to make sure this sinks into your ears. See what, what he says. Second half of verse 44. Here's what he wants them to hear. Here's what he wants them to listen carefully to. He says to them, The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Listen carefully. 
Listen carefully. The Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of men. Now, verse 45. But they did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. So they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him. Luke goes to great lengths to explain to us that the disciples did not have a clue what Jesus was talking about. In fact, there's four phrases in verse 45 that are kind of stacked one on top of another. Look at the four phrases. They did not understand what this meant. It was hidden from them. They did not grasp it. They were afraid to ask him. If I were to use one word to summarize the disciples in this situation, I would use the word clueless. They didn't get it. They didn't understand what he was talking about. So let's keep reading the story. Verse 46, an argument started out among the disciples as to which of them would be the greatest. Now just think about that for a second. Jesus just said, hey guys, guys, let me tell you something. I want to make sure this sinks into years. The Son of Man is going to be, Son of Man is going to be betrayed to the hands of men. Okay. And they get into an argument about not what that means. They get into an argument about which of them is going to be the greatest. Isn't that amazing? I mean, it, it, it just blows my mind that, that they had this, this kind of a mindset. Which of them would be the greatest? Look, pick up the story. Uh, verse 47. Jesus, knowing their thoughts, took a little child and had him stand beside him. And he said to them, whoever welcomes this little child in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me, uh, the one who welcomes one who sent me. For he who is least among you all, he is the greatest. So Jesus explains that to them. He explains it all to them. And if I were to use just one word to summarize the disciples at this point in their lives, I would use the word prideful. They were arguing about who was the greatest. I'm building something here. Let's, follow, let's pause for a moment. The first word was what? Powerless. The second word was clueless. The third word was prideful. Let's go to verse 49. Master, said John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name. Now remember, they had tried to drive out demons and they couldn't do it. Remember, they tried to drive the demon out of the boy, and they failed. There were, there were nine of them that, while the others were on the mountain, there were nine of them trying to drive out one demon, and they failed. And so here's what we read in verse 49. Master said, John, we saw a man driving out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him because, because what, church? He's not one of us. He's not one of us. If I were to use one word to summarize the disciples in this situation, it would be the word jealous. How dare him do something like that? He's not one of us. He's out casting out demons. He shouldn't be doing that. He's not one of us. Jealous. Pick up the story, verse 50. 50. Do not stop him, Jesus said, for whoever is not against you is for you. So each time these disciples get off track, Jesus brings them back. He gives them some correction. And then we pick up the story. (laughs) Verse 51, it just gets worse. 
Verse 51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Let me tell you what that means. From this moment on, Jesus resolutely had decided he's going to Jerusalem and he's going to the cross. It's going to take him a while to get there. He's going to go from different towns and cities and villages. But he's on his way. In his heart and in his spirit, he's heading towards Jerusalem. In his heart and in his spirit, he is heading towards the cross. He has resolutely set out that he's heading to Jerusalem. He's heading to the cross. In that context, we read this, verse 52. And he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. Now you know, if you know anything about your Bible, Jews and Samaritans did not like one another. In verse 53, but the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. Uh, they didn't want anything to do with the man that was going to Jerusalem. There was such hatred there. So, verse 54, the disciples. When the disciples, James and John, saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? <laughs> I mean, if you want me, it's kind of a Barney Fife moment. <clears throat> you want me to call fire down from heaven? As if they could. If I were to use one word to summarize the disciples in this situation, it would be the word angry. Mad. I mean, so mad that John says, listen, just, just let me call fire down from heaven. Just to destroy them. Now, everybody look up here for a moment. If all you knew about the twelve disciples, if all you knew about these, sometimes the, the men are called apostles, if, you all, if all you knew about the twelve was what you read in this one chapter, you would conclude that this was a group who were ego-driven, narcissistic, and absolutely useless to the cause of Christ. And yet, these are the same men that Jesus would entrust with the gospel. These are the same men that Jesus would use to start His church. These are the same men that He would use to turn the world upside down. How do you explain that? How do you explain that? I'm trying to understand or trying to decide the best word to use these to describe these guys, how do you explain that these goofballs became who they became? How do you explain that Jesus used these guys who got it wrong so many times to do so much for the kingdom? I think there's a hint in Luke chapter 5. If you put your finger there in Luke 9 and go over a few chapters, Luke chapter 5. I think I understand why these disciples, though they were flawed, were so powerful. Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5, verse 10. Well, let's start in verse verse 8. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and he said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee and Simon's partners. And then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And watch verse 11. It's, it's highlighted in my Bible. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. 
Mark in his account of this story and Luke in his account of this story said not only did they pull their boat up and leave everything to follow him, but they also used the word immediately. Immediately they pulled their boat up on shore and left everything to follow him. If I could use one word to describe the disciples at this point in their life, it would be the word wholehearted. And I think that was the secret to their lives. Here's the first point I want you to get today. Write this down if you're taking notes. The first point I want you to understand is this. The thing that makes your life useful to God is when you are wholehearted in your commitment to Him. Let me say that again because it's so important. If you don't get anything else, make sure you get this. The thing that makes your life useful to God is when you are wholehearted in your commitment to Him. You see, sometimes you're not going to get it right. Sometimes you're going to mess up. Sometimes you're going to misunderstand what He says or you're going to have a hard time comprehending what He's talking about in His Word. Sometimes you're going to let your ego get in the way. Sometimes you're going to think that you've got more power than you really do. Sometimes you're going to be angry and your anger will get the best of you. Sometimes you're going to blow it and God's going to have to turn and rebuke you. But please get this. You can be a work in progress and still be a genuine follower of Jesus. You don't have to be the best. You don't have to be the brightest. You don't have to be the most talented. You don't have to be the strongest to be used by God. And you don't have to say, I I always got everything figured out. No. Sometimes we're going to be like these apostles, these, these disciples, and sometimes we're just going to mess up. And sometimes we're going to do the wrong thing. And sometimes we're going to look foolish. And sometimes we're going to feel powerless. And sometimes it's just not going to work the way we thought it was going to work. And sometimes we're going to wonder what we're doing. But my question is, but are you wholehearted in following Jesus? Because the thing that makes your life usable is not your talent. The thing that makes you usable to God is not what you bring to the table. The thing that makes you useful to God, are you wholehearted following Jesus? I want to go ahead and give you my second point and then use the scripture to support that second point. So here's the second point I want you to get. Jesus is not interested in half-hearted followers. Jesus is not interested in half-hearted followers. You see, there was another group in this chapter. There was another group of followers, if you will, of Jesus. Jesus encountered three men who aspired to be part of His tribe. Three men who wanted to be His followers. But Jesus understood that these three men were half-hearted and their desire to follow Him. So let's pick up the text now. We continue the same story, Luke chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, we pick up the story in verse 57. As they were walking along, as Jesus and the twelve were walking along the road, a man said to Him, I will follow you wherever you go. That sounds good, doesn't it? I will follow you wherever you go. And here's what Jesus challenged him with and what he challenges us with. Jesus challenged him with this statement. You need to count the cost. Look how he describes it in verse 58. 
Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Matthew tells us in his gospel that this first guy was a teacher of the law, which meant that he was a scribe, which meant that he was a man of influence, which meant that he was a man of position in his community, which meant that he probably was a man who had a quite comfortable life and probably lived in a comfortable home. And this was the man who went to Jesus and he said, I will follow you wherever you go. But Jesus challenged him to count the cost. Jesus said, you need to know something. Foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Before you start following me, count the cost. You see, living the life that God wants you to live will cost you something. I'm going to say that again, church, over in the Life Center. I want you to hear this. Living the life God wants you to live will cost you something. I mean, just ask Jesus. He set the bar pretty high, didn't He? He left heaven. He endured the physical torture of the cross. The agony of our sin. It cost Him something to live the life God wanted Him to live. And don't be surprised if following Jesus is going to cost you something. Apostle Paul is another example. Apostle Paul, in Acts chapter 20, put your finger there in Luke 9, go over to the right real quickly. Let me just read the text. Acts chapter 20, verse 22. And now compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. And I only know that in every city, the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. I've got news for you, church. True Christianity is not for those who are lukewarm or moderately committed or an occasional churchgoer. True Christianity is for those who are willing to pay the cost of following Jesus. Too often we settle in our easy chair faith in an easy chair church surrounded by people who have the same kind of of perspective and we think we're kind of in a bonus round and we can kick our feet up and watch the kingdom of God go by. But Jesus is not looking for half-hearted people to be part-time Christians. Jesus said that those who follow Him have to count the cost. Then there's a second guy, and the second guy that Jesus encountered, Jesus actually went to him. The first guy came to Jesus, but the second guy, Jesus went to him, and he challenged this man about having the right priorities. Look at verse 59. He said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, the Lord's words here sound harsh to us, to our modern ears. Uh, Every commentator, though, that I've looked at, every scholar that I've read, they all say the same thing, that more than likely, this man's father was not dead, nor was he even near death. 
that the phrase he actually used was a Near Eastern phrase that simply meant, I have a responsibility as the son to help my father, to help him in his family business, to stay with him until he dies, and then to distribute the inheritance. So this man was saying, in essence, listen, I will follow you later. Right now I've got some other things I need to take care of. I would like to follow you later. Right now, there's some other things that have my attention. After my father dies, after I get his inheritance, then I'll be ready to follow you. Please understand what's at stake here. This man was being invited by Jesus to be one of his followers. This man was being invited by Jesus to step into the work of the kingdom of God. This man was having a once in a lifetime opportunity and his response was, I'd like to do that later. I got some other things I'm focused on right now. I've got some business deals I need to take care of. I've got some things on my plate. My plate's pretty full. I'd like to do that later. Rather than passionately pursuing what God was giving him to do, this man said, let's just put that off for a while. Could I ask you a question? Are your priorities in order? Real followers of Jesus have their priorities in order so that when God opens a door, they pursue what God wants them to do with their lives. When God opens a door, they pursue what God wants them to do with their lives. I love a statement I found in one of David Jeremiah's books. He said, and I quote, Most churches are filled with people who aren't eager to walk through any door other than the one leading to the parking lot. Don't let that be you. Don't let that be you. Don't ever say to Jesus, I will follow you later might need to work on what your priorities are and say, I will follow you now. As you open the door, I will follow you. And then there was a third guy in this story, again in chapter 9, verses 61 and 62. And with this man, Jesus challenges us to focus on what He has called us to do. Verse 61, Still another said, that is, another man came up to Jesus and he said to him, I will follow you, Lord. But first, let me go back and say goodbye to my family. And Jesus replied, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the service in the kingdom of God. Again, here's another man who volunteered to be a follower of Jesus. Here's another man who says, Put my name on down. I'd like to be one of your followers, one of your disciples. This man was ready to go, and his only request sounds logical to me. His only request was, Just let me go back and say bye to my family. Perfectly reasonable. Probably would only take a few hours to go do that. At most a couple of days to go to wherever his family was. I I, I will follow you. Just let me go back. Watch these words. Let me go back. See my family. And tell them goodbye. But Jesus knew this man's heart. Jesus said to this man in verse 62. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back, there's that word. No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. 
Living Bible says, anyone who lets himself be distracted from the work I planned for him is not fit for the kingdom of God. Here was a man who said, listen, listen, I want to do what you want me to do. But right now, right now, let me go back and do this. And Jesus said, you can't be distracted. You can't be wholehearted if you're distracted. So in Luke chapter 9, we have really two groups of people. We have, and it's so interesting, we have the wholehearted followers of Jesus who really were messing it up. And we have the half-hearted followers of Jesus who wanted to do the right thing and they wanted to look right and they, want, they, they sounded pretty good. In fact, they sounded better than this crowd did. The wholehearted followers of Jesus were just really struggling. The half-hearted followers of Jesus were not ready. Because Jesus is not looking for part-time Christians. Jesus is looking for people who have a wholehearted devotion to Him. He can do more with wholehearted followers who don't have their act together than He can with half-hearted followers who are pretending to be more than they are. So my question is, which group are you in today? You don't need to answer that out loud, of course, but, but honestly... And I'm not just talking about on Sunday morning, because Sunday morning we all look like we're wholehearted. That's why you're here. But I'm talking about, honestly, uh, through the rest of the week, are you a wholehearted follower of Jesus, or are you a half-hearted follower of Jesus? The people through whom God can change the world are people who are wholehearted followers of Jesus and know they don't always get it right and sometimes they don't understand everything. Sometimes they lose their cool and sometimes they mess up and sometimes they struggle. But in their heart, they're wholeheartedly following the Lord. So which group? Wholehearted? Half-hearted? Would you bow your heads with me? I want to ask you a question as you bow your head. <clears throat> the question I would ask you today is, do you know the Lord as your Savior? For those of you watching at home, those watching in the Life Center, do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? You see, real salvation is not when you claim a religion. Real salvation is not when you get baptized. Real salvation is when you wholeheartedly give your life to Jesus Christ. And I actually am thrilled that in the Bible, the people who give their life to Jesus Christ, who immediately leave everything and follow Him, I actually like that in the Bible sometimes we see they struggle too. See, sometimes people have said to me, Pastor, uh, I, I'd like to be a Christian, but I don't know if I can live it. I'd like to be a Christian, but I'm afraid I, I'm not ready to live that lifestyle. And, and I would agree with you that you're not probably ready to live that lifestyle. I would agree with you, you probably can't live it on your own. But when the Lord Jesus comes to live inside you, and if there is a wholehearted commitment to Him, He can change your life, and He can use your life to change the world. Twelve men in the New Testament through whom He did that very thing. He changed their lives, and then He used their lives to change the world. But the one thing that Jesus is not looking for is half-hearted followers. Part-time Christians. See, following Jesus is more than just words. It is really the way we live our lives. 
following Jesus is more than just a Sunday morning go to church. It's really the way we live our lives. And I would ask you to pray with me that you would live your life this week as a wholehearted follower of Jesus. He'll show you what that means. He'll show you what that looks like. He'll show you those places where you'll make, have to make a hard decision. He'll show you those places where maybe you'll need to change something. But are you willing to say, Lord Jesus, today, this week, I want to be a wholehearted follower of Jesus. Father, I pray for that. I pray You'd work in our lives in such a way that we would pursue Your calling on our life. That we would not be distracted by life. We would not be distracted by the sin and the temptation around us. But God, I pray that we would be a wholehearted follower of Jesus this day and this week. May we live a life that shows our commitment to You. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.